Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacalariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Dr. Keir Lieber, a professor in the School of Foreign Service in the Department of Government at Georgetown University, and Dr. Daryl Press, an associate professor of government at Dartmouth University. We'll be talking to Dr. Lieber and Dr. Press about their new book, The Myth of the Nuclear Revolution. Dr. Lieber, Dr. Press, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with an accusatory question. Dr. Lieber, Dr. Press, I have fought as many nuclear wars as you have, yet you two have written an excellent book on the topic. If it wasn't in the trenches, how and when did you first begin thinking about the questions at the center of this book? It's a great way to ask the question, um, because in fact, the reason we decided to write the book was that we saw a discrepancy between what we were learning in the in the realm of the academy, and what we saw uh, in the historical record, the evidence of uh, in history and in contemporary politics, for that matter. And just to be very specific, um, Daryl uh, trained at MIT in the political science department. I was trained at the University of Chicago in the political science department. We were well steeped in this elegant kind of theory uh, about nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. And when we got to writing our first books, and subsequently we, again, noticed this big discrepancy that the world, the way it was, didn't, didn't seem to fit, didn't seem to be easily explained by this elegant theory of nuclear deterrence um, uh, that we had encountered when we were being trained to go into this profession. And so um, once we met and, and started talking about these issues, we, we pretty quickly started collaborating on, on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence. And, and in many ways, that this is the this book is the culmination of that um, initial collaboration. So, what is the theory of nuclear revolution, and where does it come from? So, why don't I take a, a stab at this? Um, so, the theory of the nuclear revolution, I think, emerged organically from the work of a great number of scholars who sought, starting in the early 1950s, to understand how these terrible and destructive weapons might affect international politics. It grew from people like Bernard Brody, and then um, uh, Kier. Give me, give me some more names. Well, I mean, how about just Waltz and Jervis? You know. Yeah. So, Skipping so at the end of the '50s, with people like Bernard Brody, and then by the late '70s, early '80s, people like Bob Jervis and Ken Waltz tried to systematize what others had been arguing for decades, and specifically, what Jervis and Waltz argued was that. Nuclear weapons didn't merely create terrible risks of destruction. They created a condition of stalemate in which countries armed with nuclear weapons couldn't possibly defeat each other in major wars, and therefore those major wars were not going to happen. But that was just the first step. Because major wars, the kind of wars we had seen in World War I and World War II and throughout history, because those couldn't be won and couldn't happen, one would expect that international politics more broadly would change. Namely, if countries didn't have to fear that their neighbors were going to conquer them anymore, then they didn't have to arms race so much. And they didn't have to worry so much about which countries were their allies and which countries were in an adversary's camp. And they didn't have to worry so much about what political scientists call relative gains, namely the rising power of adversaries. Because as long as they have nuclear weapons, they're secure. And they didn't have to worry about things like who holds various pieces of strategic territory. So the argument of the nuclear revolution was nuclear weapons create stalemate, a condition in which nobody can win a major war. And because they create stalemate, the old strategies of geopolitics, the old things that caused so much conflict in international politics through the millennia, were now outdated. And international politics would be much more pacified. That's what Keir refers to when he said what we were taught in school. And strangely, 
the more we learned about history and contemporary politics, the more we realized it just completely ran against what this theory was suggesting. Well, that's an excellent segue to my next question, because in your estimation, history has been kind to certain parts of the theory and very cruel to others. Can you explain what the theory gets right and what it gets wrong about international politics in the nuclear age? Well, that's, that's a big question. Um, why don't we break it break it up into a couple of component parts first. Um, uh, look, maybe, maybe, maybe the goal is to take a step back and ask why nuclear weapons are even considered the greatest you know, tool of stalemate ever created to then understand why they should have these various implications. Um, and so, you know, what makes nuclear weapons different than all other weapons that, that have been created? And I think it's most people, um, even the, the lay reader, be familiar with some of the arguments about nuclear weapons being small, relatively small, um, hugely destructive, um, uh, you know, a lot of bang for the buck. And given the ability of nuclear armed states to hide their weapons, to move their weapons around, to harden them from attack. Um, uh, in general, the idea is that you know, nuclear weapons uh, um, make it easy to retaliate against any attack on your country. And if two sides have nuclear weapons, neither side is going to um, be, quite, be eager to invade or attack the other. Um, and that's what we call deterrence. And when both sides have it, it's sort of mutual, mutual deterrence. Um, and so the fundamental prediction is, of course, no war. Nuclear deterrence theory, full stop, is simply that uh, you know, the, the probability of, of one side attacking another if it's got nuclear weapons is, is infinitely small. But the key is the next step to what is the theory of the nuclear revolution. I mean, Robert Jervis's book was called The Meaning of the Nuclear Revolution because he wanted to say much more than just nuclear weapons have this impact on war or no war. He went on to say, as Daryl suggested, you know, you shouldn't have the same level of arms racing. You shouldn't, you don't even need to really care about allies. Why do I need allies? I've got nuclear weapons. I'm fundamentally secure in a way no countries before the nuclear era could ever hope to be. Um, why do I need alliances? Why do I have to care about relative capabilities? One side is growing stronger. Um, uh, you know, this is no longer Athens and Sparta. Um, and why do I even need to care about uh, uh, territory, foreign territory, strategic territory? I don't need to possess other lands to protect myself. Again, I have nuclear weapons, so I'm secure. So the theory of the nuclear revolution is that whole set of hypotheses about the consequences of nuclear possession. What you suggest, what do they get right or get that wrong? The no war prediction, you know, has so far panned out um, by most uh, social scientific measures. You know, there's been no war between two nuclear powers since the advent of the nuclear age. Yes, there have been some crises. Yes, there have been some, uh, you know, some close calls. Um, uh, yes, there's some evidence that you might use to dispute the logic behind that prediction. But in general, we agree. We think nuclear weapons are the greatest deterrent ever created. It's when you move on to these other, this other set of predictions that you really um, run into trouble if you're a proponent of the theory of the nuclear revolution, because the world has not looked like that at all, right? The, I'll just say very briefly to conclude the answer to this question, the Cold War is basically synonymous with the greatest arms race you know, ever that we've ever seen. Um, countries today continue to be fearful of, of relative gains concerns, just as the U.S. and the Soviet Union were during the Cold War. Um, alliances clearly loomed large in the Cold War, and surprisingly, they still loom very large today. And, um, uh, you know, most leaders around the world are obsessed about trying to deter attack, usually conventional attack, not nuclear attack. Um, so there, there, there are a lot of ways that, in, in a lot of ways, contemporary politics and the politics of the last century, last half of the century, look like the same old geopolitical playbook um, that, that, uh, that we've seen in the pre-nuclear era. Just to build slightly on what, what Kier said is, um, surprisingly, the first scholars who made that argument that Kier just said were the founders of the nuclear revolution. Yeah. Namely, if you read the works by Jervis and Waltz and others, especially Jervis and Waltz, however, they started by saying, this is how the world is now. The world is now locked in stalemate, and therefore, you don't need to do all these things. But second of all, they pivoted to... <laughs> And none of you leaders seem to understand this. 
you're still using the old strategies. You're still arms racing when you don't need to. You're still obsessing about who's in your alliance. You're still excessively concerned about growth and relative power, relative gains. And Jervis and Waltz, therefore, simultaneously laid out the elegant logic of the nuclear revolution and admitted and complained that leaders were not acting the way they should. And so that's where our book picks up and says, well, if, if they've done such a great job laying out the logic, and if they and we and everybody else admits that the logic is not working out, the question is why? Is it that leaders are still not understanding the realities of the world 75 years into the nuclear era? Or is it that the theory is wrong? And that's where we come down. It's an excellent cliffhanger. Let's dive right into the book. So you begin in chapter one by breaking down the causal logic of nuclear peace into two components. The first of those components is the immense destructiveness of nuclear weapons. Yet you argue that that explanation is overstated. Why? Should I jump into this, Kier? Sure, go ahead. So, so right. So, so there are two arguments out there as to why nuclear weapons are the greatest instruments of deterrence. And if you if you look at them carefully and you figure out which of these is stronger, that will help you see the problems of the nuclear revolution argument. So, so let me dive in. So one view basically says that the reason these are such great instruments of deterrence is just because they're so darn destructive. They can kill so many people. And what Kier and I and others observe is that nuclear weapons are incredibly destructive, but war was vastly destructive prior to the nuclear age. That war was not a limited thing. It was a total thing in many cases. You know, 100 million people died in World War II. Nearly that many died in World War I. And in fact, if you go back even further in history, war typically was accompanied by genocide and starvation and often enslavement of, of defeated societies. Losing a war was a total thing in many cases. And yet countries or city-states or empires continued to practice it. So war has been enormously destructive, and not just to societies, to the leaders themselves. If you were the leader throughout most of human history and you started a war and you lost, you were going to be killed. Your family was going to be killed. So the notion that nuclear weapons make it more unpleasant to lose a war, it's possible, but it, 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 strains, it strains our intuitions a bit. The alternative explanation is that nuclear weapons change everything because they make victory nearly impossible. Because of those factors that Kier mentioned, that nuclear weapons are small and easy to hide, very destructive and easy to deliver, that therefore even the weak side in a war, even the losing side, can utterly destroy the strong. And therefore the whole logic of war falls apart. If you can't defeat someone, why fight? So that's, to our mind, what is different about nuclear weapons. And frankly, it leads to a very elegant theory of the nuclear revolution. Namely, if nuclear weapons have made, changed the world such that the strong can no longer victimize the weak, why fight? And if you can't fight and win, well, then why spend so much money preparing for war, building conventional forces, building nuclear forces, worrying about alliances, being concerned about relative gains? You can just finally relax. That's what the theory predicts. The problem is, 75 years in, it's still not happening. So the second explanation um, for the peace-inducing power of nuclear weapons is their potential to create stalemate. And this is really the cornerstone of your argument. Why are nuclear weapons unique in terms of their capacity to contribute to stalemate? And in outline, how does it explain the reality of intense geopolitical competition? Daryl, is it okay if I take a quick cut? Go for it. All right. Well, look, I mean, I think the reason that we make this distinction between this, the pure level of destruction and the tendency for nuclear weapons to create stalemate is that we, we, we figured out that the problem, the discrepancy between the theories, predictions for how the world should work and the reality that we see in history and today lies in, these, in this concept of stalemate. And specifically, we identify three hidden assumptions. Um, again, we say hidden assumptions, or I'm referring to hidden assumptions now because, you know, Jervis, Waltz, other uh, proponents, every uh, other policymakers don't always make these these um, uh, uh, assumptions clear. But for the theory to work logically, 
um, for the predictions to ensue, you would need these assumptions to be true. And again, I think they're pretty non-controversial in terms of whether or not proponents would see it this way. The first, of course, is that stalemate is easy to create. Okay, For the reasons I, I mentioned before, it's small, highly destructive, relatively easy to deliver against uh, another country, easy to, to, to conceal because they're small, um, uh, 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 harden, build them, move them around, et cetera, that you don't need a whole lot. You know, how much is enough to create stalemate? The answer for proponents of the theory of the nuclear revolution is essentially not that much. Um, once you reach a certain threshold, and again, this is different from any other kind of military weapon in the past. Um, uh, once you have a certain amount of power, certain amount of nuclear capability, you don't need more, regardless of what the other side does, because you have this ability to retaliate and no aggressor is going to take a chance on that. The second hidden assumption is about stalemate is that once you reach stalemate, there's no going back. That stalemate is a one-way street, that it's enduring. Once you've built this kind of capability, again, very little that you have to do in response to an adversary's uh, 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 strategic planning steps uh, to, to make sure that stalemate is robust. Okay, So this condition is easy to get into. Once you're there, there's no going back. And then finally, stalemate um, also allows you to deter, deter things below the level of nuclear attack. Specifically, it's relatively easy to deter conventional attacks too. Right? Why would any country that would contemplate invading another country that had nuclear weapons is not going to say to itself, oh, but I'm not launching a nuclear attack. I'm just invading conventionally. All the fears about retaliation and being hit with nuclear weapons in response to that attack are going to be salient. And therefore, nuclear weapons and stalemate that is created by this also effectively deter conventional uh, 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 concerns about conventional attack as well as nuclear. Just to build on that. So I think Kier set that up really well, which is if those three assumptions are true, if stalemate is easy to build, once you have nuclear weapons, you're in a condition of stalemate. And if stalemate is irreversible, and if the if nuclear deterrence under stalemate protects you not only from conventional, not only from nuclear, but also from conventional attacks, then you should expect the nuclear revolution to play out the way that Jervis and Waltz expected. But suppose those predictions are not true. Suppose those assumptions are false. Suppose once you acquire nuclear weapons, it takes a long time before you have enough force in order to truly stalemate adversaries. Well, that's going to then kick off a long period of intense arms racing and competition and maybe even preventive war. Suppose it's the case that once you create a stalemating nuclear force, it could be reversed by an adversary. They could escape stalemate. That means arms racing and competition will continue. And suppose that once you build a stalemating nuclear force, you have to do even more in order to convince somebody not to use conventional force against you then once again, it opens up the door to enduring competition. And basically, those three assumptions are what we interrogate in the three empirical chapters of the book. And not to reveal the ending, but what we basically find is that each of those assumptions turns out to be false from the standpoint of the nuclear revolution, that in fact, stalemate is difficult to create, that stalemate is not a one-way street, it's potentially reversible, and that building a stalemating nuclear force is not the end of the story with respect to deterring conventional attack. And so that's our answer to the puzzle. That's why nuclear weapons are simultaneously the greatest instrument of deterrence ever invented. And yet, at the same time, they have not transformed international politics. Daryl, I think you've done an excellent job striking fear and panic in the uh, heart of our listeners, but I'd like to get even more concrete. So what does the early history of the Cold War tell us about the difficulty of establishing a condition of stalemate? Daryl, why don't you take this uh, one? I'll, I'll take the next one. Yeah. Sounds good. So, so to, to the, the first challenge that Kieran and I had in the book was to, is to, is to investigate the question, is stalemate easy to create? And, and the Cold War provides some a terrific basis to examine the the emergence of stalemate and the reason is is that the united states had nuclear weapons first the soviet union was playing catch up and throughout the 1950s you saw the the soviet union developing first a very rudimentary nuclear capability a slightly more sophisticated a more sophisticated then a big capable nuclear capability 
And it allows us as political scientists and armchair historians to dive into the archives and ask, what level of capability did the Soviet Union have to build until they had this stalemating effect on the United States? So we're basically turning around the normal American framing of the Cold War, where, sure, the United States and its allies were trying to deter the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe. That's true. At the same time, the Soviets were building a nuclear capability to try to deter the overwhelming nuclear capability of the U.S., which is also true. And what we discovered, what we did is, is we made use of four existing theories of nuclear deterrence. One of them says existential deterrence, that once the Soviets had even a, a minimal nuclear capability, that should be enough to deter the United States. The second one, uh, minimal deterrence, said they have to have more capability, the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon against the U.S. homeland. The third one, assured retaliation, says they have to have the ability to survive a U.S. disarming attack and then retaliate. And the fourth one, assured destruction, is even a higher level of capability. What we discovered in the Cold War case is that when the Soviets first deployed a developed their first nuclear weapon, rather than causing the United States to shrink back and say, well, we have to avoid nuclear war at all costs, it caused the United States to double down. Namely, what it meant is it, it made the U.S. change its, its war plans for defending Europe from a lackadaisical, slow-moving atomic offensive to a fast-moving, large-scale nuclear war designed to destroy that small Soviet nuclear arsenal. Similarly, when the Soviets built a more capable arsenal, one that could actually reach the U.S. homeland, that didn't cause us to back off. That caused us to double down again and build more capability to disarm them. And it was only when the Soviet Union deployed a truly assured retaliatory capability, which was probably in the early 1960s, right, 12 years or so into the Cold War, it was only that capability that caused the United States to basically panic and realize it needed a new strategy for defending Europe, that fighting and waging a nuclear war was going to be a mutual catastrophe and we had to scramble and develop new concepts for NATO's defense. So that's a long answer, I'm sorry. But the basic answer is, is the creation of nuclear weapons did not create stalemate in the 1950s for the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did not create a stalemate against the United States until sometime in the early 1960s, more than 10 years later, when they finally had the ability to survive a U.S. disarming attack and retaliate against the United States. It was in the late 1950s when it first began to dawn on U.S. policymakers that the condition of stalemate was impending. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the cognitive process by which the U.S. finally identified or diagnosed, I think is the language you use in the term, and then how long it actually took them to implement new, more flexible nuclear plans? So the short, Kira probably wants to jump in on this too, but, but I'll just say the cognitive process is basically, it, it, was, it was panic a bit. And, and the, the way that they realized this is that the senior most political decision makers in the U.S. were getting yearly briefings from the Joint Chiefs of Staff on what would happen if there was a major war in Europe. And they saw each year that the narrow window of victory was getting narrower, narrower, narrower. And that in the 1950s, mid-1950s, a war with the Soviet Union would have been bad, but principally for the Soviet Union. And by the early 1960s, the highest level U.S. decision makers started getting briefings that said, no matter who starts a war, we all lose. Let me just highlight for your listeners, the simple version that, that we're often taught about nuclear deterrence in the Cold War is just wrong. The simple version is that the 1950s were a period of mutual assured destruction and stalemate. And, and they weren't. Throughout the 1950s, the United States felt that if a, a war started in Europe, we, the United States, would win. And by win, I mean we would disarm their nuclear force and zero or close to zero nuclear weapons would hit the United States. And thus, they thought they had a way of deterring the Soviets from conventional invasion of Europe. By the early 1960s, American leaders were playing through these scenarios and realizing no matter how a war started, no matter who attacked first, it was going to be a disaster. And that then finally, finally triggered the process you just described, John, which is the search for other ways of deterring conventional war in Europe 
that didn't rely upon the large-scale use of U.S. nuclear weapons. That's the threshold for stalemate. You draw a distinction between the effect that nuclear weapons during this period exert on conflict dynamics during war and during peace. And I think you've, you've hinted at that distinction, but I want it to be crystal clear for our listen- listeners. So can you explain that? All right, I'll take, I'll take one last yeah, crack, sure, and then I want to hear Kieran, no, no, which is simply to say, um, uh, from the beginning of, let me say it simply, um, the creation of, of Soviet nuclear weapons, we believed, we believe, created increased caution in U.S. foreign policy, even prior to the Soviets developing a true assured retaliatory capability. So the United States was 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 cautious in a whole variety of dimensions in the 1950s, even though we felt we could prevail in a nuclear war for the simple and logical reason that, God, we didn't want to have a nuclear war. And so we do think that low levels of nuclear capabilities create caution. Frankly, you see this today with regard to North Korea. North Korea has a small and primitive nuclear arsenal, and yet that causes fear, fear in Korea, South Korea, fear in Japan, fear in the United States. So even small and relatively incapable nuclear weapons have diplomatic effects during peace. What Kier and I point out, and the records make clear, is had there been a war, had a war either started intentionally by the Soviet Union or by the West Germans or by accident, the Soviet, the vulnerable Soviet nuclear arsenal of the 1950s would not have protected them. What it would have done is it would have forced the United States to attack all their nuclear forces and, frankly, all their air bases with an overwhelming attack as quickly as possible to disarm them. The Soviet nuclear arsenal only created a true pacifying deterring effect on the United States once they generated an assured retaliatory capability, meaning once they convinced the United States that we could not win a nuclear war. Yeah, John, maybe I can just add a very brief point that's related to this idea of kind of wartime thinking about deterrence versus peacetime. I mean, leaders don't spend a lot of time worrying about a bolt from the blue on a you know nice, clear, sunny day that they're going to be attacked out of nowhere. Um, but yet the way that people think about deterrence, they often don't force themselves to consider what those calculations will look like you know, when the stuff has hit the fan and conflict is underway. And the simple, simple point I want to make is that a lot of the thresholds for deterrence that you think might apply in peacetime, all of a sudden um, um, don't, don't look so, so, so secure and and safe um, once the shooting starts. Hey, John, 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 before you go in, let me, let me just jump in with one last thought. Again, this sounds really bleak, but it's not as bleak as it sounds. Which is, again, there are powerful reasons to believe that these weapons are very, very effective instruments of deterrence. They make it very, very difficult for even strong countries to imagine that they can defeat weak nuclear armed states. And therefore, they make leaders ask themselves five, ten times before they would contemplate initiating a war. And so that's the good news. The bad news and what Kier and I are pointing out is they don't have the transformative effects on international politics that people have believed, that there's a reason, therefore, why the United States and its allies did what they did in the Cold War. There's a reason that the Soviet Union did. There's a reason why Russia today is focused on their nuclear deterrence, why North Korea is not satisfied with having a couple bombs in a basement. So there's important policy implications of what Kier and I are saying, but it's not all the bad news that it sounds like. Despite all this, nuclear weapons are powerful instruments of deterrence. Let's move on to assumption two of stalemate. Conventional wisdom says that stalemate is a one-way street. So once you have built a secure, reliable, and redundant nuclear weapons arsenal, you are safe. You disagree. Why? Yeah, this is a key part of the argument, as I think the other uh, elements are too. But for for nuclear weapons to have the game-changing impact, on international relations, as theorized by scholars and others. Nuclear armed countries need to have confidence that the stalemate, once it's been created out of this long process of competition, difficulty, that once you reach stalemate, that it's irreversible. And again, looking at history, looking at contemporary politics, 
we're not sure where that confidence in stalemate as um, uh, as as uh, enduring really comes from. I mean, first of all, stalemate is a variable from the beginning of the nuclear age through the Cold War. There were times in which the United States had the ability to destroy the Soviet nuclear arsenal without fear of retaliation. There were times when that fear of retaliation increased. There were times of technological advance when U.S. capabilities against, a say, a single leg of the Soviet triad were quite effective. There were uh, Soviet concerns were a variable. Okay. And so the key concept here is about counterforce. And I'm sorry to use, I, I don't like to use the nuclear jargon, but counterforce is very important here. It's basically the ability to target an adversary's nuclear weapons and destroy them to eliminate the fear of retaliation if war comes. Um, the story of the Cold War is a story of an obsession with counterforce capabilities. Again, it's a variable. It waxed and waned. But the United States was never interested in remaining in a stalemated world of mutual assured destruction. Okay, um, The competition began from the very beginning, and it continued throughout the Cold War. Um, the as Daryl suggested, you know, once the Soviet Union had acquired an assured retaliatory capability, the United States sought to shift uh, uh, its strategy to come up with more options, um, but it never abandoned the pursuit of counterforce. The U.S. effort to track and target Soviet nuclear forces uh, continued throughout the Cold War, even accelerated in the last decade of the Cold War throughout the 1980s. Um, our colleague, uh, Brendan Rittenhouse-Green, has written a terrific book about some of those um, efforts. Um, and arguably, the United States, when it looks at a country like North Korea, is deeply interested in the ability to take away those nuclear weapons and that ability to retaliate. Um, I, we, we go into, in the chapter in the book, we discuss contemporary developments at the, at the level of technology that, again, should lead people to wonder whether or not nuclear survivability is such an automatic thing. Okay. I mean, if I, if I can just take one more minute on this, you know, from the beginning of the nuclear era, countries have pursued a, a bunch of different strategies to make their nuclear forces secure. What, what can they do? They can harden uh, those capabilities, meaning, you know, uh, build silos with reinforced, uh, uh, reinforced silos, build hardened aircraft shelters, right? Protect them from an adversary's nuclear attack. They can try to conceal those forces, again, through mobility as much as through uh, um, straight up concealment. And they can just build more of them, you know, redundancy. And one of the arguments we make is that when you look at recent technological developments emerging out of the computer revolution, improvements in accuracy of weapon systems and the ability and uh, improvements in remote sensing, the ability to peer into an adversary's backyard and find things to track and target. There have been immense improvements that whatever one says about any point prediction about whether country A can destroy country B's forces, every nuclear-armed country today should be less confident about its ability to remain in a stalemated world with a retaliatory force um, in the face of uh, a sophisticated adversaries, for example, like the United States. You guys have a, a very interesting methodological approach here to assessing the viability of modern-day counterforce. And I wanted to ask, why would counterforce targeting, which has been so volatile historically, be more palatable, so to speak, to leaders today? And I'd ask you to, to focus on some of the arguments you make in the book about the loosening role of normative constraints in this process. I think in terms of the, the palatability of counterforce targeting, or, or that's, you know, just kind of be blunt, the, the prospects for counterforce strikes during wars, um, I think in some ways they've always been more likely and more, unfortunately, more palatable than they've appeared. And, and to some extent, they, they've actually become more palatable. And let me, let me kind of expand on both of those. Um, so number one is the key thing to keep in mind is that the circumstance under which somebody might actually think about trying to disarm an enemy, it's probably not in peacetime. You know, the, new, the North Korean nuclear arsenal is probably secure enough today against the United States as to make any attack during peacetime look like too destructive, too risky, et cetera. 
the the circumstance in which a counterforce strike would presumably start rising in, on, on the option list is in the middle of a war, in the middle of a conventional war, in the middle of a conventional war in which North Korea is threatening escalation or has maybe started moving its nuclear weapons around or alerting them, or perhaps has even crossed the nuclear threshold. Those are the circumstances in which the the cost benefit analysis of trying to destroy their remaining nuclear forces suddenly will swing in the other direction. That's number one. Number two, some of those technical things that Keir talked about a moment ago do make counterforce strikes more palatable now than they were in the past. Among other implications, the revolution in accuracy means you don't necessarily need nuclear forces to destroy an adversary's nuclear forces. You can do it with conventional weapons. And in doing so, disarm them or try to disarm them without spreading vast amounts of radiation around the entire region. Um, furthermore, um, you can do it with, if you have to use nuclear weapons, much lower yield nuclear weapons. And in some cases, nuclear weapons and nuclear attacks that would have basically no fallout implications. So some of the implications of these technological changes that Kira is talking about um, mean that 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 nuclear or attacks on nuclear forces are likely to have vastly smaller effects on surrounding populations than they would have in the 1950s. You you urge caution uh, regarding the estimates you use in the book, but to to give a concrete figure to our audience here, you guys estimate that using a modern day low low yield nuclear uh, missile to destroy uh, nuclear targets in another country if done appropriately, you could reduce what would have been two to three million deaths in the past to about, I think, 100 to 200. Did I get that right? Yes. So, I mean, yeah, it, go ahead, Kier. Sorry, I was just going to say, of course, it depends on the model you're using and, and the parameters that you set. But using the same kinds of formulas that nuclear analysts have used you know, throughout the Cold War, that targeters have used, that arms control proponents have used, on paper, we demonstrate that result. And the response is just sometimes surprising. Um, you know, it's still, oh, well, use of a nuclear weapon is, is, is the use of a nuclear weapon. And no, the, the phrase that you often hear is no president, no American president is ever going to order the use of nuclear weapons, uh, you know, except in response to the use of nuclear weapons. And I, I, again, I, you know, the thing we always, or I often say in, in response says, okay, you're telling me that you're a president deciding nuclear, North Korea has decided to escalate to the nuclear level. They haven't launched their weapons yet, but we've intercepted orders uh, for use. Maybe they've even used one already. The point is you've got option A and option B and option A results in two to three million people dying and you've disarmed North Korea or option B, you've disarmed North Korea and 200, 500, 1,000 people um, have, have died. Are you suggesting there's really no difference between that? Even if you're making normative arguments, it would seem to rely on the death and destruction caused by nuclear weapons. Um, and so this should matter even for those considerations. And it goes without saying, well, maybe it doesn't go without saying, um, that Daryl and I are, are, are pretty skeptical of the strength and durability of the nuclear taboo as it's typically understood. Um, and Daryl's written about even some polling data um, when everyday Americans are asked about different nuclear use scenarios. That 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 bar is not quite as high as most people think, sadly. Hey, let me just take take a, a step back for one second to help help your um, listeners kind of um, kind of figure out where to place these arguments in their mind. Just to be 100 percent clear, Kier and I are not celebrating these changes. We're not saying that they're good or they're bad. Um, there are arguments that the world was safer before these counterforce capabilities were created. And there are arguments, frankly, that given U.S. foreign policy, it's essential we have these capabilities. People are welcome to have either of these views. What we're trying to do with this book, and this chapter in particular, is explain what has happened. And what has happened is basically, since the moment that stalemate began in the early 1960s, the U.S. political and military leadership said, stalemate stinks. We don't want to be stuck in stalemate. Let's invest in the accuracy and the surveillance and the counter command and control capabilities and the anti-submarine warfare capabilities to escape stalemate. Let's get ourselves in a position such that if there is a war, we can protect our allies and our cities. Now, you might or the listener might think that was a good idea or a bad idea. 
But what we're saying is that's what explains the arms race since the mid-1960s. That's what explains U.S. nuclear modernization today's, today. And that's why stalemate is not a one-way street. It's why the creation of nuclear weapons and the creation of stalemate in the early 1960s didn't end the arms race. It kicked off subsequent rounds of competition as the Soviets sought to make their forces more secure and as we chased their ballistic missile submarines all around the North, Pacific, North Atlantic Ocean. Kier, I don't know if you would agree with this comparison, but I heard in your response in particular um, something that kind of sounded like Tom Schelling. Now, Tom Schelling in Arms and Influence is somebody who believes powerfully in the impact of the nuclear taboo. However, I think one of the misunderstood aspects of that book is Schelling makes this argument in effect that if we don't think rationally about the processes of nuclear escalation, then when the crisis comes, decision makers who are in a state of fear and panic will reach too quickly for the only option that they have, which is basically letting all the nuclear uh, missiles fly. And instead, we need to think rationally about the costs and benefits of the different potential options available to us in the future before the crisis comes so that if, God forbid, people are going to die, we can keep that number as small as possible. Is that a fair kind of assessment of your views there? I love love bringing Schelling in at exactly this point. You know, I'm reminded of one of his final pieces um, in response to whether or not, you know, the world should move toward global zero, you know, uh, global nuclear disarmament. And one of the things that just comes so clearly through that piece is his sense that that would be if countries somehow managed to get to zero, you know, at the first sign of conflict, the effort to reestablish, to rebuild and indeed to launch nuclear weapons against one's adversary, it's going to be a very nervous world, right? That idea of, you know, not waiting until the moment comes to plan for a race to the bomb. I think it's pretty telling. And one of our favorite quotes from Schelling that we use in the conclusion of the book, I believe, is this idea that, you know, at a certain, when, when, when Schelling asked, at what point does a nuclear arsenal stop, start becoming a deterrent and stop being a target? Okay. So as the Soviet Union built up its nuclear forces, as Daryl mentioned, what did it do? All it did was result in more targets on the U.S., you know, uh, PSYOP plan for nuclear war. We, you know, targeted runways because now Soviet bombers could deliver nuclear weapons. That again, I think it's just a mistake to assume that the most powerful and immediate impact of nuclear possession is this confidence and sense of safety in stalemate. And Schelling understood how the world worked, and I, don't, I think that's why he didn't share that same kind of confidence. Let's move to the third pillar of your argument about stalemate where you address the use of nuclear weapons against conventional forces. So let's start here. Why would states consider using the ultimate weapon against a conventional attack? Daryl, who would you like to take this one? Yeah, why don't you kick it off and I'll... I'll I'll kick it off to start. Look, nuclear weapons are a great boon to weaker powers, conventionally weaker powers, right? That's definitely true. If you are, you know, for all of human history, if you were conventionally weak, that was it, right? You might find a clever strategy for achieving victory. You might seek out allies to, to, um, uh, to balance out the conventional uh, um, balance of power. Uh, but there was no real way to address that. Maybe there was some technological development, et cetera. But again, according to the theory of the nuclear revolution, Anyone contemplating conventional attack against a nuclear adversary is going to, again, think twice. Um, But if you're the conventionally inferior power and you're facing the prospect of war, you're going to be quite tempted to consider using your nuclear weapons, not in a, you know, a, a bolt from the blue attempted disarming attack, but perhaps in a way to bring a conventional conflict to a close before it even begins. Um, so the, if the first question is simply about why might nuclear use seem appealing, the answer is for a conventionally overmatched power, 
nuclear weapons are, are enormously attractive. And exhibit A, of course, is the United States in the early in the Cold War, what was the fundamental mission was to defend the West European allies against a Soviet conventional invasion. And in, at least in the first half of the Cold War, we were conventionally well overmatched by Soviet forces. How did the United States respond? With reliance on nuclear weapons. Can you describe? Yeah, I would, I would, Sorry, yeah, go I ahead, just, Daryl. I would just build on that and, and just simply say that, that the consequence of losing a conventional war whether we're talking about human history, we're talking about recently, the consequence of losing a conventional war for most countries in the world is catastrophe for their society, their civilization, for, for their leadership. And so countries acquiring nuclear weapons have often thought of these weapons as a way of stalemating countries who had, who had powerful conventional forces from using those conventional forces against them. The question for the nuclear revolution is how hard or how, how easy or difficult is that mission? If a small nuclear capability can easily deter um, a conventional attack, then the problem of conventional deterrence does not necessarily lead to arms racing and tension, et cetera. What we've seen over and over again throughout the nuclear age, however, is that countries who face overwhelming conventional threats follow the same nuclear playbook in terms of deterring it, which is they build tactical nuclear weapons, they build levels of options for coercive escalation during a conventional war, they build complicated command and control systems so that they can escalate after suffering two or three weeks of conventional attacks. And it's that process which once again accelerates and triggers this competition in the nuclear age that advocates of the nuclear revolution said wouldn't happen. This is what explains today why Pakistan is deploying hundreds of tactical nuclear weapons near their border with India. This is why Russia has gotten super interested in non-strategic nuclear weapons. It's why North Korea is building up its arsenal, etc. And it's this notion that simply having nuclear weapons doesn't necessarily give countries the coercive capabilities they wish to deter conventional attacks. They also have to have usable, flexible options to deter conventional attacks from the strong. Thucydides famously identifies three immutable causes of war, and those are fear, honor, and interest. And in my view, fear tends to be overlooked or undercounted in the contemporary international relations literature. By contrast, you two place fear at the center of this assessment of stalemate. And I think you've kind of gotten to the interest question and a little bit fear. But one of the things I really enjoyed that you did in the book is you explained why leaders like Kim Jong-un would be so afraid of the consequences of losing a conflict against the United States and thus would be willing to endorse a strategy predicated on nuclear brinkmanship. Can you draw out why someone like Kim Jong-un would be so afraid for our audience? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a crack at that, Daryl, if it's okay. I mean, again, just first on the you know, fear, honor, interest uh, issue, I mean, and there's just a strange tendency when we talk about other countries, other leaders, and their willingness to use nuclear weapons, there's this tendency to say, oh, well, that's because so-and-so is crazy, irrational. You know, why do we not want nuclear weapons in the hands of the Iranian mullahs? Because they'll use them because they don't care about this life. Um, why would Kim Jong-un contemplate using nuclear weapons. Well, he's got terrible advisors. He doesn't hear the truth. There are no devil's advocates. He, he has, he's got an uh, inflated sense of his own power. Um, look, North Korea might end up using nuclear weapons out of anger, out of emotion, out of lunacy, and all the rest. But what Daryl and I constantly are emphasizing is why is that the first thing you turn to, right? Why, why, do, you think, why do you think an accident is more likely than um, a deliberate decision to escalate with nuclear weapons. Because in our view, that should be the baseline expectation. In a scenario like North Korea fighting a conventional war against the United States and the combined forces with South Korea, because we look at the balance of conventional power, you look at the state of the North Korean army, and any almost every analyst that would look at that uh, uh, order of battle is going to decide pretty quickly that this is going to be a, a very one-sided fight. Kim Jong-un is not a fool. He understands history. He saw what happened to uh, Gaddafi 
after Gaddafi decided to abandon his nuclear program, he saw what happened to Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? If you lose a conventional war to the United States, at least since the end of the Cold War, the outcome for the leaders of those countries is terrible. It's on the noose. It's rotting in jail. Kim understands this, and he realizes that his only ability to deter or bring a conventional conflict to a close before he ends up on the news is through the use of nuclear weapons. Again, not in step one, a launch and all out attack against Los Angeles. That, that does not seem rational. But what might seem rational is a demonstration detonation of a nuclear weapon, maybe hitting a, 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 a military target in the area. But the whole concept is headed, going up the escalation ladder to convince the United States and the South Koreans that continuing the conventional fight, continuing the march on to Pyongyang is not going to be worth the rewards of, of a victory because weapons two, three, four, five, and six might be used by North Korea at the same time. Again, the logic should be familiar. Daryl mentioned Pakistan's logic of nuclear escalation vis-a-vis India, but we've got the entire Cold War where this was U.S. nuclear strategy. NATO's plan was to deliberately use nuclear weapons first. Why? to counter their conventional inferiority. Let me just add a, a two sentences to that and say, if there is a war on the Korean Peninsula and if North Korea is as rational as we are, they will escalate and use nuclear weapons. And the reason is they're going to lose a conventional war. And if they don't understand that today, they will understand it very, very quickly. And once it's clear to them that they're going to lose, Virtually the only option they have to stay off the noose, to prevent South Korean forces from marching into Pyongyang and finding the leadership and hanging them, is escalation to force a stalemate. When we think about the Korean Peninsula, the United States, we think of it as a regional war. For them, it is a total war. So you end the book by outlining the implications of your theory. Can you summarize those for our listeners? Well, let me just start on the, on just on the theory side, because actually I, there's one point I was going to make in, um, um, that I decided to hold off on, but it's worth making now because I think it, it then segues into the overall theoretical implications, and, and then maybe we can talk about some policy implications. But note that in that last example about why a conventionally inferior country would want need to rely on nuclear escalation to achieve its security... What that kicks off, again, as in the other two examples, it kicks off a pretty wicked competition at the nuclear level. Because on the one hand, a country like North Korea or Pakistan um, uh, is deeply interested in making its nuclear forces um, secure, resilient into a shooting war. Right? They need to be able to threaten nuclear retaliation. So they, that leads them to build certain kinds of capabilities to pursue redundancy, et cetera. And on the flip side, for the stronger conventional power, in this case, the United States, the deep interest in maintaining and building up even better counterforce capabilities to eliminate that ability to escalate in the face of conventional war. So in all three of the empirical chapters, right, rather than nuclear weapons being a game-ending development, often nu- nuclear weapons become game on. The competition is on, and that's why we don't see behavior in the real world of international politics reflecting this prediction of a benign world. Again, I think that's, that is the, one of the major kind of theoretical implications here, that we've gotten it wrong to think of nuclear weapons as ending international politics. Competition endures. Let me jump back to something Kier said at the very beginning of this, this podcast. He talked about the things that we learned when we were in graduate school. And, and the things we quickly realized in the, in the year subsequently. When I was taking classes on this at MIT, um, one of the things that we learned, we, we all knew, it was in the, the late 1990s, and we all knew that, that throughout the Cold War, even though the superpowers were locked in, in stalemate, we all knew that the United States continued to experiment with accuracy improvements and was experimenting and deploying stealth bomber systems and that the United States was doing things, you know, advanced anti-submarine warfare. But what we were constantly told was that this was futile and it was basically irrational because there was no way out of stalemate. So what did we learn since then? And what we have subsequently learned is that for 
more than a decade, the United States was actually following every Soviet ballistic missile submarine around the Atlantic, that for many, many years, the United States had found ways of breaking into Soviet strategic command and control networks. We found out that the United States had developed all kinds of, of ways of disarming and negating Soviet nuclear forces to the point that at the end of the Cold War, the Soviet political leadership did not believe that their nuclear arsenal was survivable. And so what we've subsequently learned is that lots of the nuclear history, which we learned and probably many of your listeners have learned, has to be rewritten now with the documents and the evidence that's come out in the decades since the Cold War. What this tells us in terms of policy implications for the future is it both gives guidance to countries like the United States seeking to modernize their nuclear arsenals, and it also gives us explanations for what countries all around the world are doing. With regard to the United States, I would say, be careful of hubris with respect to what makes a survivable nuclear weapon system. We've basically gotten in the United States where we equate submarines with survivability. If you have submarines, it's survivable. If you don't, it's not. And what we know for a fact is that other people's submarines have been and maybe still are vulnerable. What we don't know is whether we can really rely upon submarines that we're laying today to be survivable in 30, or 30 35 years as technology continues to advance. In terms of explaining other countries' behaviors, it's, it's often left as a mystery or as a sign of hostility that China is increasing and making more sophisticated its nuclear arsenal or that Russia is doing the same. And what we would say is understand the powerful strategic incentives that are forcing them to modernize and forcing them to struggle to create more survivability, especially as the United States itself is increasing the offensive counterforce capabilities in its own arsenal. So partly what our book does is helps hopefully explain this puzzle in international politics, partly Hopefully what it does is helps your listener and maybe U.S. policymakers understand the motivation behind adversaries' behavior. And partly what it does is hopefully it inoculates us from some of the hubris that we have that leads us to believe that the survivable nuclear forces that we have today will remain survivable in the future, even as technology continues to change. Writers like Daniel Ellsberg and Carl Sagan showed us some of the danger of nuclear accidents. And we know from other authors like Vipin Narang that the doctrinal and operational concomitants of a coercive nuclear posture deliberately increase the probability of nuclear use. Uh, we now know from your book that the race towards stalemate by nuclear adopters can be the most dangerous period of the nuclear acquisitions process um, in terms of the strategic dynamics. Um, so, one of the takeaways I had from your book um, is that nuclear nonproliferation is even more important than we might have appreciated in the past. Would you agree with that assessment? Do you feel differently? Yeah. I'll, I'll take a quick, uh, I'll take a crack at that. Um, look, the, the the whole point of the book is to say that we need to take a step back and understand why the conventional wisdom and our theories in particular about how international politics work in the nuclear age are not realistic, that we've gotten a lot of things wrong. And why is that? We try and explain that. And at the end of the day, the conclusion, because we believe that nuclear weapons are not going away, um, uh, that the best response is to take the world the way it is, try and understand how leaders might minimize the dangers that are attached to nuclear weapons, and that would include accidents and unauthorized use and misperceptions and all kinds of other things, and take nuclear deterrence as the serious business for which it is. So when you think about proliferation, there's a tendency to think, oh, the bad guys want to get nuclear weapons. Why would they want to do that? They must be evil. Well, again, I think our analysis suggests it's quite understandable why, in particular, conventionally weaker powers might want nuclear weapons in the same way we wanted them. Um, but what I think we would also emphasize about proliferation is that that decision to go nuclear itself is fraught with all kinds of danger, both danger in trying to build up 
enough nuclear capability to have the benefits of deterrence. Um, but even then, once you've reached stalemate, the competition doesn't end. So effectively, when a new nuclear power is making the decision to enter the nuclear club, they should understand it's not just going to be a quick and easy race to mutual assured destruction and then everything is fine. Indeed, it implies that you're committing yourself to an enduring competition that is not going to end at any particular stage. And you may make the decision that those dangers in that competition outweigh the benefits of actually pursuing proliferation. But it is going to be a fraught process, um, almost no matter the, the country that decides to go nuclear or not. So to conclude, um, I wanted to give you guys two questions. First, in my view, this is primarily a realist critique of a realist theory. And I was actually going to ask both of you about the role that uh, Schelling's taboo plays in preventing nuclear use. Here, you've already expressed your feelings regarding that theory. So I'll just ask you, why do we overrate the impact that the nuclear taboo has on the stability of international conflict dynamics? Daryl, are you there? Oh, yeah. I thought he, I thought he said Kier. I'm happy to answer, too. Oh, yeah. did Kira, <laughs> I, I, th- I thought you made the point about the taboo. <laughs> I did. I, I, I revealed that we didn't have a whole lot of confidence in the strength or durability of a, of a nuclear taboo. And, and I, you know, again, I think the question is directed at Daryl, but what, what he thinks does he disagree with me? And he's welcome, no, to play, I, no, he's welcome to play good cop to my bad cop. But I'll simply <laughs> say that, you know, Daryl and I have both spent way too much time studying um, the pre-nuclear world of conflict and the post-nuclear uh, uh, and the nuclear world. And, you know, when you read about uh, um, the bombing of civilians, uh, the conventional bombing of civilians by the United States against Japan that preceded the droppings of the atomic bombs, it's not, it's not clear that there was a norm that, that proponents of the nuclear taboo identify um, uh, uh, that existed uh, 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 before the introduction of nuclear weapons, nor is there much of a evidence of that norm at work in U.S. nuclear policy throughout the Cold War. But again, let's not pick on the United States. I mean, maybe at most the nuclear taboo has been institutionalized in the United States government. Okay, again, I don't believe that. I look at the war plans. I look at you know targeting plans. It sure doesn't seem like the, the taboo is so operative. But of course, there is some taboo. There is some hesitation about wanting to cross the nuclear level. That's not purely driven by uh, a rational cost-benefit analysis. But what we always come back to is when push comes to shove in a wartime environment, where does the confidence in that kind of restraint come in? I I just don't see it. And then you look around the rest of the world, it's not clear at all to me that nuclear taboos are operative beyond the shores of the United States, if that. I'll I'll jump in on this, too. And So, John, you asked, why do we maybe as as a policy community or academic community place more confidence on the taboo and taboo-like arguments than Kier and I think is warranted. I think it's because norms and values do in fact shape and constrain our decisions to a, a, a substantial effect during normal circumstances and peacetime. But the problem is the behaviors that tend to follow end up being very different in extreme circumstances. And so we're drawing the wrong inferences from the behaviors and the thoughts and the values that we see playing out in peacetime. Let me give you guys a couple of examples. One of them is the one that Kier said. In 1940, the United States led the world in denouncing counter-civilian bombing, right? Because the Nazis were doing this to Great Britain. And we said, that's what makes, that's what proves to you Americans that this is not just another case of inter-European squabbling. This is good versus evil. Well, that was 1940. Then Pearl Harbor happened and the United States led the world in creating counter-civilian weapons and using them, right? My alma mater, MIT, was at the forefront of creating petroleum bombs to burn down cities. So the flip from finding these to be abhorrent tactics of war to embracing them was almost overnight when we went from being at peace to being at war. Um, Think about in our lifetime, the change in sentiment toward torture before and after 9-11. Before 9-11, you simply could not stand up in the public space in the United States and advocate torture. After 9-11, it was a real policy debate. And something like 50% of the American public concluded for a while that if you had to torture people to root out ticking time bombs, then you had to do it. 
Now, I think our society has now switched back more toward the previous position on torture. But the point is, is that we are drawing excessive confidence from our peacetime, low stakes, low fear situation about how people will view nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, even during high stakes circumstances. And so that's, I think, why we overstate the impact, the constraining effect of norms and taboos, because they do shape us during peacetime and normal circumstances, much less when people are afraid and worried and, and want to take any step they possibly can to reduce or eliminate the threat. We're going to wrap up with a note on continuing education. If readers want to learn more about nuclear strategy, what film should they watch? Dr. Strangelove or Failsafe? Yeah, I'll go with Dr. Strangelove. You know, it's your, it, one's first love is one's first love. Um, it's, so it's always been a personal favorite of mine uh, and a lot more fun, uh, fun to show in class, although they're both terrific films. Yeah, I got I got to say I agree with Kira. I think it's going to have to be strange of on this. You know, the problem that the, those who believe in nuclear deterrence is is you know have is that there've been, you know, no good war movies made of the big conventional wars that didn't happen as a result of nuclear weapons. And so, you get the the war movies of the the conventional wars from the pre-nuclear age, you get the the horrifying what if wars about the nuclear age. But um but it's hard for the those who believe that these weapons are really good deterrents. To, to have as powerful gripping movies um, that make that case too. But Kira's definitely right. Strangelove, I think, is the way to go. Dr. Lieber, Dr. Press, thanks for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you. Th- thank you. Thank you.